Thank you, Logan. Great job. All right. So you've already heard the text this morning from John chapter 12, where Drake read about the triumphal entry. And typically on this Palm Sunday, that's what we're celebrating. We're celebrating the triumphal entry. Now, just to make sure that we're all on the same page about what the triumphal entry is, this is basically what it is, is that Jesus begins his ministry and he's going all throughout the Galilee, all the way throughout this area of Israel, preaching, teaching, healing, uh, doing many, many works for all the people so that they can see it. And many individuals are flocking to Christ. And if we go through the Gospels, we'll see that so many are flocking to Jesus that there are times that even when the Son of Man has to break away in order to recuperate, and in order to spend some very focused time on his disciples. But as we head into the week of Passover, now it is time for Jesus to make his way into Jerusalem, into Zion. And now Jerusalem is up on this hill, all right? And many, many Jews, many Israelites who live, live from afar will make this trek, this pilgrimage to Jerusalem every year as they get ready to celebrate the Passover, which is a celebration, as you recall, of what God did in Exodus when he brought the Israelites out of Egypt, when he saved them, and he told them to go in their homes and to, to spread blood, to paint blood on the doorposts above the door in order to be a sign that they are his people and death would pass right over his people. And that was the 10th plague that allowed the Israelites to leave Egypt, crossing the Red Sea into Canaan. That's what the Passover celebrates, this literal passing over of death of God's people. Well, now Jesus is going to enter Jerusalem during the Passover week. And this time, we do not have a young lamb that is going to be slaughtered and that blood spread on a doorpost so that death might pass over God's people. This time, we are going to have a lamb of God that is going to be slaughtered. And his blood is going to be poured out on the cross so that all who are covered in the blood of Christ, death will pass right over. You see the symbolism there that's happening. That is not a mistake. That is not God rewriting history because God is the author of history. That is not the gospel author saying, man, we can make a really good tie-in here to Exodus with this whole Passover theme. Let's tie this. No, absolutely not. This was God's intention all along. In fact, I dare say this, that the primary purpose of the Exodus, of that scene where that blood is painted on the doors of God's people, the primary purpose was not so the people would have a way out of Egypt. That was not the primary purpose. That was a purpose, not the primary purpose. The primary purpose of that event in Exodus was to point forward to Jesus. Jesus is the primary subject of all that is happening in Exodus. We just didn't get to see it yet until now. Because Jesus is the point of every text throughout Scripture. Everything 
points to Christ. And so as we enter into the week of Passover, during this time, all these Jews would be making their way to Jerusalem. And during that time, they would be ascending to Jerusalem and they would be singing the Psalms of Ascent. There are psalms in Scripture that are called the Psalms of Ascent, and they would be singing these as they are ascending the hill to Passover and to worship and to celebrate that momentous event. And so Jesus is now making his way into Jerusalem. And I want to say just a couple things about the triumphal entry before I get into the main part of the message, because the main part of the message is not about that that, t- that walk into Jerusalem, or shall I say, that ride into Jerusalem. But I want to just make a few comments about that. It says here in verse 12 of chapter 12, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. What is that feast? It's the Passover feast that they're coming to, and Jesus is coming. And so they took branches of palm trees, and they went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Now, you may say, wow, that is a great word that these people are crying out to Jesus. Where does that come from? That is from a Hallel psalm, Psalm 118. And this morning, I want to read that psalm to you. Psalm 118, this is a longer psalm. It's going to be on your screen up here. I want you to listen to these words. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Let Israel say his steadfast love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say his steadfast love endures forever. I believe that God's steadfast love does, in fact, indeed endure forever. The Lord is on my side, I will not fear. What can man do to me? The Lord is on my side as my helper. I shall look in triumph on those who hate me. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in man. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All nations surrounded me. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me, surrounded me on every side. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. They surrounded me like bees. They were out like a fire among thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them off. I was pushed hard so that I was falling, but the Lord helped me. Glad the Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. Glad songs of salvation are in the tents of the righteous. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. The right hand of the Lord exalts. The right hand of the Lord does valiantly. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. The Lord has disciplined me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us. And this is where we tie into the triumphal 
entry. Save us, we pray. O Lord, O Lord, we pray. Give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. The Lord is God, and he has made his light to shine upon us. Bind the festal, the, the festal sacrifice with cords up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will give thanks to you. You are my God, I will extol you. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. This is the psalm that they are singing as Christ on his colt, which is prophesied in Zechariah chapter 9, is riding in like a king. And they're saying, the Lord's steadfast love endures forever. The Lord is my salvation. They're crying this out. And then they say, tie the sacrifice up to the horns and get ready to sacrifice it for the Lord. Little did they know that they were going to be tying Christ up. They did not get that, that the sacrifice was not going to be a ram pulled from the thicket like in the story of Abraham and Isaac, but the sacrifice was going to be the Lamb of God. The one riding on the colt as a king into the nation would be sacrificed, would be, would be punished on the criminal's cross like a thief and would be killed for your and for my salvation. That is our God. That is our God. The God of our salvation took our place. Christ, the Son of Man, rides in on a donkey to be crucified, willingly giving up his life. Now, in Scripture and in history, this triumphal, uh, triumphal entrance was not a unique thing. It was actually set aside for kings. It was, an, it was a common thing for kings. We can read it in the extra biblical texts, the historical books. We read where kings would come in and that people would lay down their cloaks for the kings. And it was a triumphal entry. Here's the king. He's victorious from battle or he's going into battle and he's victorious. And here come the kings. And this horse that he would ride in on may have been a horse that had never been ridden before because it was sacred, because the king was getting ready to ride on it. And so Jesus is riding on a new colt that had never been ridden on as a king to his death. To his death. Because the majority of kings are riding in, why? Riding in to sit upon their throne. Jesus is riding in to die. Why is it a triumphal entry? It is because through the death of Jesus Christ, God, God has triumphed over sin. He has triumphed over evil. And through God's triumph, we also have victory. And that's why this is a celebration that is why on Friday, as we gather together to sing, we call it Good Friday. We call it Good Friday because God has been victorious over sin and death. And that is a very, very 
good thing. And so here Jesus is coming in on his cold, this triumphal entry unto his death. Now, the reason why I'm choosing John to read this is because unlike the other gospels, the triumphal entry tends to happen towards the end of the gospel, right? But in John, it happens right in the middle because Jesus did a ton of things after he enters in to Jerusalem. And we're going to focus on one of those things. Jesus washes the disciples' feet. He calls out Judas, the one who would betray him. And then he says these pivotal words that are deeper than any of us could imagine when he tells us to love one another. And that's where we are this morning as we briefly walk through this. So if we could pull up John chapter 13, verse 31. If you have your Bibles in front of you, you can pull that up. We're going to walk through this. Because in, such, in, in five verses, Jesus is going to lay out something so poignant and so important for the life of the church. And that's what we are. If we are gathered this morning and you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you are a member of the church universal. You are a member of the same exact church that Peter and Paul are members of, that Luther and Calvin are members of, that Billy Graham is a member of, and that your grandparents and your great-grandparents who loved the Lord before you are a member of because we are united by the blood of Christ. You are a member of a church with other members that you will never meet this side of glory. You are members of a church covered in the shed blood of Christ as far as Ethiopia, China, Japan, South America. Those are your brothers and sisters in Christ. And I dare say you are closer to them because of the shed blood of Christ, then you are even your own flesh and blood, your natural flesh and blood, if your natural flesh and blood are not saved. The church is a precious, precious thing. And in this passage, Jesus is telling us to love one another. I'm going to read what Logan read earlier so that we can remind ourselves. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus said, this is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. He's referring to himself here. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. How is God receiving the glory? It is through the obedience of Jesus going to the cross. That is how God is getting the glory. God is not going to get glory from rescuing Christ from the cross. God is going to get his glory by watching his son, his only beloved son, die a criminal's death on that criminal's tree, on that cursed tree. And God is going to get the glory from that. Modern liberal theology would say that that is cosmic child abuse. And I would say that's just God's providence. Christ did not go to the cross kicking and screaming. He went to the cross willingly. And God received the glory from that. And Jesus says in verse 33, little children, yet a little while I am with you. 
You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. What does he mean by that? Where I am going, you cannot come. Here's what he means. He means, I am going to the cross. I am doing what none of you can do. Remember when it says, I will not trust in nations, I will not trust in princes in Psalm 118. Why? Because we can only trust the Lord. Who do we trust with our salvation? Christ and Christ alone. You cannot save yourselves. I don't care how hard you work. You cannot save yourself. Your spouse cannot save yourself. Your child cannot save you. You cannot save your child. Only Jesus. There's only Jesus. And he says, you cannot come with me. Why not? Because it's my job. It is my job as Jesus to lay down my life. Peter, do not pick up the sword here. Now is not the time. I do not need to be rescued from this. I go willingly to the cross. And then he says this, and I want you to listen very carefully. A new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. Let me say a word about this commandment, because this is odd, right? A new commandment that I give you. Now, we're familiar with the commandments of the Old Testament. We're familiar with the Ten Commandments. We're familiar with Leviticus. We may have never read it, but we're familiar with it's there. That's that book that as you are starting, you're going on your pilgrimage through the text, right? Every January, you're like, I'm going to read through the whole Bible this year. And you read through Genesis, and you get to Leviticus, and then you land in Leviticus. I mean, you get through Exodus, and then you get to Leviticus, and you're like, I think I'm done. I'm good. Let's jump to the Gospels now, right? Because Leviticus is just a whole lot, right? I get it. I understand it. But it's important. And Jesus says, a new commandment I give you. And it's very simple. It's not a bunch of thou shall nots. It's a you will. Love one another. And why is that? It is because, and I want you to hear me now, every single law in the Old Testament, even the beloved Ten Commandments are now obsolete. I'm going to say that again. Every law in the Old Testament is now obsolete. I did not say they are unimportant. I did not say that we should not know them. I did not say that we shouldn't understand their point. I'm saying they're obsolete. And the reason is because Christ has fulfilled every single one. And there is a new one in its place. You love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And here's the reason. Every single commandment in the Old Testament is summed up 
with you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with your mind, with all your mind. And the second is like it, that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Every single, see, that's what this is going after here, okay? That's what this new commandment is. And he's saying, I have fulfilled every single one of those old commandments. You couldn't do it. The judges, you know, they were brought in to help you do it, right? And one would rise, one would fall. They kept doing this, right? You, you, you ordained these kings to come in and lead a nation into holiness. And what happens? The nation splits in half. Babylon comes in, brings you into Babylon. You start worshiping a tall golden pole, right? I bring you out of Egypt, and what's the first thing you do? You make a golden transformer that looks like a cow and start worshiping it. Folks, if we don't understand by now that we can't save ourselves, we never are going to get it. Because it's Christ that fulfills every one of those laws. Only Christ. And so Christ comes in. He gives his life, living a perfect life, gives his life over to death, only so that we might have life and life abundantly. He has fulfilled every single Old Testament law. And he said, here's your new commandment. Those were the old commandments. That was the old covenant. Here's the new covenant. Love one another as I have loved you. Now, who is Jesus talking to here? Again, liberal theology, and let me say the whole culture, our world, will say that means that Jesus is saying we are to love absolutely everyone. Now, let me pause for one moment. Time out or technical. Okay, I don't know what that means. All right, but you get the idea. Jesus does say, love everyone. He does say that. He does say, love your enemy. He says that, and we should. That is not what he's addressing here. He is talking to his disciples. He is talking to the beginning of the church. And he says, love one another just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you love, if you have love for one another. That's the commandment, that we love one another. And he is talking to his disciples. He's not talking to that unbeliever over here. He's not talking to the Pharisees. He's not talking to that tax collector that doesn't repent. He is talking to those who are going to be covered in the shed blood of Christ. Love one another. Now, why is that important? Here's why. He knows. He knows what's ahead. He knows the trials. He knows the tribulations. He knows what the culture is going to try to do to him and try to do to them. And he says, you all have to be united. You all, if you cannot love one another, united by the shed blood, then you are not going to be able to love your neighbor the way I have called you to love your neighbor. You are not going to be able to love your enemies as I have called you to love your enemies if you cannot love one another. And here's the challenge. As I look out today, let's be real honest with one another, okay? In the last few moments of this message, let's be real honest with one another. Here's what I see. 
I see the church cannibalizing itself. We are not able to go and reach the lost because we are so busy fighting with one another about trivial matters. We are so busy fighting these inconsequential temporary fights, failing to love one another as Christ has called us to. And because of that, we are not able to reach the lost. How many churches have split over silly, silly, ludicrous reasons? You know, I have seen churches almost get into physical altercations because of an organ. I'm not talking about like a liver, okay? That might be a reason to fight. I'm talking about the organ, okay? Whether or not we're going to use an organ on Sunday mornings. Now, folks, I like the organ. Now, when I was 15 and 25, probably even 35, I was not a fan of the organ. But now, at my exceptionally mature 43, I'm going to say I'm a fan. Okay? It's not a reason to fight. But churches will split over these silly things. If you go and survey churches that split, it is almost never over poor theology. It is either over preferences or over personal failures. And the root of that is that we do not love one another. Now, let me, let me, I'm going to dial it back for a minute because now we've got to redefine what that looks like just real quick as we close. I want us to be very, very clear here what I mean by love because the culture means something completely different than what I'm going to describe here. Here's what our culture means when we say you have to love one another. It means that we have to accept one another no matter what. Accept sin, accept debauchery, accept depraved lifestyles. That if you don't accept and even celebrate the whole person, then you do not love me. That's what our culture says. You cannot disagree with somebody in our culture and still love them. That's what our culture says. But let me surmise what love looks like in action in the Gospels. What does love look like, especially in the church? Number one, not forsaking the gathering. You love one another well just by being present. Just by being present, you love one another well. Hebrews 10, 23 through 25 
says, Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near." The day, folks, is drawing near as Christ is going to return. And the author of Hebrews is saying, as that day becomes closer, we should be all the more ready to gather together to encourage one another as that day approaches. Now, our consumer-ridden society that has even plagued the church says this, the purpose of church is for you. The purpose of the church is to make you feel better. The purpose of the church is for you to be energized. The purpose of the church is for you to feel fulfilled. That's not what the author of Hebrews says. The author of Hebrews says the purpose of you being with the gathering is so that you can encourage your brother or sister. That's the purpose, so that you can love one another, build one another up. That's the point. Folks, it's not about you. It's not. It never has been. Just like your salvation is not about you. Your salvation, the reason Christ came and died for you, ultimately, ultimately is about God's glory. That's why. I've said it once, I'll say it a hundred times. If God did not receive the glory for you being saved, you would not have been saved. Now that's a hard word and that is a word that a lot of people don't want to hear because they've made salvation all about them. But it's not. It's all about Christ. The second way we love one another is by praying for one another. Praying for you, and I'm not talking about one of these, you know, putting prayer hands up on Facebook, okay? Now, you keep doing that. You keep doing Actually, there's a controversy right now of whether or not those praying hands, you know what I'm talking about, that thing right there, which kind of looks Egyptian to me, but that's another story, okay? There's some controversy of whether or not that's praying hands or two people giving high fives, right? We'll stick with the praying hands because I know that's biblical, but you get the idea, right? But we should be praying for one another. Now, let me ask you a question. How do you effectively pray for your brother and sister in Christ if you never see them? If you're never with them? If you don't hear their struggles? And you may say, well, I know, you know, I, I know this person, you know, I see him all the time. You know, here's the truth. I see Paul, Paul Grimes, and I love this brother. I see Paul every other week. Because Paul works. He has a job that keeps him out every other week, right? But every other week when I get to see Paul, I get to pray with that dude. I get to pray with that dude. I get to pray for that dude. That's a big deal. How are we to do that if we never are with one another? We pray for one another. Number three, we hold one another accountable. Now, that's a scary thing, holding one another accountable. But you love one another well when you hold one another accountable. Do you hold your child accountable? I hope so. 
Good parents hold their children accountable. Brothers and sisters in Christ also hold one another accountable. We serve one another. We serve one another. A few months ago, a group of us went over to Sue's house. And we cut her limbs and we cut her trees. Me and David put a light fixture in her house. And I am proud to say that that house is still standing. It's not in ashes. We were a little bit nervous for about a week there. But it's still standing. Miss Sue, a sister in Christ, needed our help. And we served the Lord by serving her. It helped that she served a really good lunch after. (laughs) But let's be clear. If we're not with Sue, how do we serve her? She's often told me that this church is her family. Because that's exactly what the body of Christ is. It is a family that is there for one another. We fellowship with one another. We love one another by worshiping with one another. We love one another by encouraging one another. That we encourage one another. We love one another, catch me here, by weeping with one another. I know COVID has been difficult for many, many families. And what made it all the more difficult was that many churches were separated because of it. And so it was difficult to weep with one another and love one another through that. And number nine, I'm not going all the way to 10. I'm not a typical pastor. Number nine, We are willing to die for one another. When Christ says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. How did Christ love us? He died for us. He died for us. And the world will know that you are my disciples by your love. Now, I will argue that one of the best ways you can witness to a lost and dying world is not by memorizing all the passages in Scripture, even though that's a really good thing to do, and I, 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 can, I commend it. The best way that you can witness for Jesus to a lost and dying world is by loving your church well. An individual that I know, not a believer, once said that they would be a Christian if the Christians acted like Jesus. Now, my first comment is this. Regardless of how misbehaved many Christians are, I don't worship Christians. I worship Jesus. I said that a few weeks ago. So, folks, the church can misbehave as much as it wants, but I'm not worshiping the church. 
I'm worshiping Jesus. But you see right there that the behavior of Christians, especially towards one another, the world is watching. The world is watching. Love one another. Love one another well. The world is watching. These little kiddos are watching. They're seeing. They, you may not think they're paying attention. They're paying attention. They're paying attention. And the world is paying attention. Love one another as Christ has loved you. And I think we could talk all day long about the meaning of the palm trees. All day long. We could talk all day long about that kind of stuff. But I think it's more important that we talk about the most critical word that Christ says. Christ loved his, loved his disciples by washing their feet. He loved his disciples by spending time with them, by caring for them, by serving them. Let us do the same. Would you join me as we close in prayer? Father, thank you. Thank you, Lord, so much for your word, for your truth. Father, I pray that we would love one another well. I pray that we would not forsake one another. I pray that we would not depart from one another. I pray that we would stick with one another. I pray that when there is conflict, that we would resolve it as Christ has called us to resolve it. I pray, Lord, that, that we would care for one another and give our lives for one another. Lord, I am so thankful how the church has ministered to me in my life. I pray that we would continue to do so. We love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.